Well, good, good morning, everybody. Can I get a good morning back from you today? Yeah, hey, thank you. That was really strong. Sometimes it's like, good morning, but today y'all are on your game. I appreciate it. It is a good, good day to be in church if we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet. My name is Tyler. I do get to be the pastor here at Anastasis, and I just want to say thank you for taking time out of your weekend to spend it here with us. Um, If it's your first time with us today, I really do mean it. Thank you, thank you, thank you for giving us about an hour of your weekend to come in and worship God together. I hope you feel welcome. I hope you know that your life matters. I hope you know that God cares about every single detail of your life. I believe that our God created you to be in a relationship with him. And so I'm really, really glad you're here because this is just one of the aspects of what it looks like to be in a relationship with God, to worship with God's people. So thank you, thank you, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here with us. And don't mind me at all. I am perspiring a little bit and that is just because I'm full double duty in a little while. And every time I full double duty, I perspire and that's just the way it goes. Um, But I'm really, really happy, like I said, to be here. There isn't a better place for me to be on a Sunday morning than right here with each and every one of you guys worshiping our God, celebrating how good he is. And we are in week nine of our message series, This Is My Year. And so week nine, I promise you all, this is the last week of the sermon series. Week nine, they tell you four weeks and shut it off. And I'm like, I don't know, but the Lord kept bringing me back. And so I want to be obedient, but we are wrapping it up. This week is week nine of This Is My Year. Before we jump into today's sermon, though, let's go ahead. Let's pray together and we'll jump right in. Father, I just thank you for who you are. God, I thank you that you're gracious and that you're good. Father, I thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. And so, Father, I pray that right now as we gather together, God, that you'd be glorified and honored. Lord, I pray that there would be nothing at all that separates us from your love and even just the sense of it. Lord, just as your word says that nothing can separate us, God, I pray the realization of that would happen today. Father, I pray, um, Lord, that today would be a day that honors and glorifies you. Lord, I pray over every word that I'm about to speak. Father, I pray that it'd be the ones that you want spoken. And Lord, I pray that um, everything we do today would bring you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. All right, well, we're going to jump in today, but before we get started, I have a question for you. Do any of you ever have like these moments where you wonder, man, how would I have responded to that? Like, how would I have handled that situation? One of like the more fascinating things for me to do is like to watch how people walk through situations and not because I'm like judging them or anything like that. It's honestly like, I want to learn. Like I'm looking at people like, man, they handle that really well. They handle that with a lot of grace. I want to do that. Or yikes, that thing got kind of out of control. Like, let's not do that. But, you know, I want to watch the steps that are taken because I think it can influence us at certain times in our life just to see how people handle things. And then there's other moments that I go, not only how would I have handled that, but how would I have handled that at that age, right? I look at my kids and some of the stuff that I notice they're doing or things they're coming up against, and I go, what would I have done at four? Well, how would I have handled that stress or whatever at two? How would I have done that? And now I'm sitting here, I just celebrated my birthday this week, and I was 32 years old going, I've lived some years, but I hopefully I've got a lot more in front of me. And I'm realizing that every single day when I think I've got something figured out, that I'm still learning about that thing that I thought I had figured out. In fact, if you would have asked me at 18, I was significantly more confident in the things that I thought I knew at 18 than I am at 32. And something that I heard from somebody who's many, many years older than me, they said, oh, no, it just gets worse. I'm like, really? Like, you think you knew stuff, and then you realize, like, I really don't know. But you have to put on the strong face, right? I got to be strong and courageous and do what I need to do. And there's some reality in saying I need to be strong and courageous and take faith steps. 
But there's also something to be said for, hey, let's analyze how we're doing this. Let's look at if we're learning, if we're not learning. Let's look at how we would have responded. Let's look at how somebody else responded and see what we can do. And that's what happened to me this week. Because we're going to go back for a moment in this sermon, back to what we talked about last week with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And after we left the sermon last week, I kept wrestling with this all week. What would I have done at 17 years old? What would I have done at 19 years old? Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they dealt with the situation we're going to talk about here in a second, they were teenagers. They weren't grown men. They hadn't had all this experience on their side. But they were young men, 18, 22 years old, somewhere in that range. They were young men. And they handled adversity in about the best way that you could ever possibly handle it. So I asked myself the question, how would I have handled adversity like that at 18? Oh, no, how would I handle it at 32? Uh-oh, how would I have handled it at 40? And you start to kind of process this thing, and you see not only is what they did amazing, but where they had their eyes at is something that I can do, too. You see, it didn't take them 60 years or 100 years to learn how to have their faith deep. It just took them having their eyes in the right spot. It just took them having their perspective fixed in the right place. And so while I think there's wisdom that comes with age, and I believe that with all my heart, and I think that there are experiences that are gained with years, I believe that with all of my heart. I also believe that our faith can be rooted by a simple switch of our perspective, a simple turn of our eyes off of our situation and on to God, a simple turn of our eyes off of ourselves and on to God. And so we're going to jump in today, Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to walk through the story as quickly as I possibly can. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was 6 cubits. So it's about 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. It would not fit in this room. The statue that he made would not fit in here. And some scholars, I told you last week, think that that statue was actually of him. That he made this enormous statue of himself, that people would bow down and worship an image that he made of himself. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was just reminded of the old song, like, You're So Vain. And I was like, that song was absolutely written about him. You know, like, that is absolutely incredible. You make a 90-foot statue of yourself? That is wild. And I can only imagine how I would have responded at 18 years old if somebody would have said to me, you got to bow down and worship that image of me. I'm like, bro. Come on, we're all good, right? We're, we're okay. But the reality is when the music plays, he has an orchestra play, when the music plays, everyone does bow down and everyone does worship it because there's a consequence for their disobedience. If they don't bow down and worship him, the consequence is death. And so the result of their worship is preservation. So their goal with their worship is just to preserve their life. But we believe that as Christians that we have a relationship with God. So the result of our worship is actually just coming more to know a living God who cares deeply about you. That as we worship him, we experience peace and we gain an insight into his heart. There's a relational aspect to, the, to our worship. Their worship was completely transactional. And so most people worship this statue except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And it says this in verse 8, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. But there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you, and they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Laban's terms, O king, we love you. Those guys don't. You put them in power, you should put us in power. That is what they're saying here. They're not doing what you asked them to do. You're the one who put them in charge. Shouldn't they listen to you? Shouldn't they do everything you've asked them to do? But instead, they're like, they're sitting there going, instead, they're not doing that. You should put us in charge. That's why the word malicious is there. They came maliciously to accuse them so they could take something from them. Their goal was to take their power. Their goal was to take their spot in leadership. They wanted it for personal gain. Like we talked about just a moment ago, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are young men. And they were only in that place of leadership because of what their friend Daniel had done for Nebuchadnezzar earlier, interpreting a dream that no one else could interpret. And as a result, he promotes Daniel and his friends into high places of leadership. So the Chaldeans want their place in leadership. They see an opportunity. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are just living their life doing their best to honor God when they have their life upended. It says this in verse 13, that Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage, I always wondered what the difference between a regular rage and a furious rage was. Just really quick, like in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? At this point, King Nebuchadnezzar is negotiating. King Nebuchadnezzar is negotiating with them. He starts by saying, hey, listen, if you just go ahead and do this, the thing I've asked you to do, then I'll go ahead and make it okay. We'll just forget you guys were ever disobedient. But you got to do what I need you to do. And I need you to bow down and worship this image that I set up. But here's the deal. He's offering them an opportunity to sacrifice what they believe for what will make them comfortable. He's offering them a sacrifice to sacrifice what they hold most important for what feels most urgent probably in that moment, which would be to save and preserve their life. And as Christians, I think we're actually presented with this temptation pretty frequently. In fact, I think it could be a daily temptation as we follow Jesus or we follow the world. As we fix our eyes on God or as we fix our eyes on ourselves, as we place our trust in God or we place our trust in ourselves, you see the circumstances are probably different, but the decision is still the same. Will you sacrifice what's most important for what offers immediate relief? Will you, or will you place your trust in God for what 
you need. Will you fix your eyes on God or will you fix your eyes on your concern? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are offered a way out of what seems like certain death. But they know what they've been created to do. They know that they've been created to serve God and serve God only. And this is a world um, for them and for us that's not all that different. You see, like literally everybody else bowed down and worshiped. Everybody else figured it out. They didn't accuse Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then a bunch of others. They were like, these three guys, we want their place in power. But every other officer took care of it, and they did what they needed to do. The reality is, in our world today, some people may say, just go along with it, right? You know what? I know it seems that's too difficult. Don't, uh-uh. That's too hard. God wouldn't want that for you. You see, God wouldn't want you to pursue like that. God wouldn't want you to push like that. And the reality is, there will come times in each and every one of our lives, maybe it's not the result of actually losing our life, but where we're going to have to make decisions around what does God want me to do and what does the world say that I should do? What is somebody telling me I should do? And we're going to have this inner struggle and this inner battle that we see with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And as we go about our life, we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions. Are we more committed to God or are we more committed to our comfort? Are we more committed to following Jesus or are we more committed to pursuing security? Which do we want? Do we want to follow God or do we want to be comfortable? Do we want to follow Jesus or do we want to make sure we've got all of our ducks in a row and we're perfectly secure? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are deeply committed to God. So much so it says this in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are significantly more committed to God and his process than they are to even their own life. They understand the stakes. Everyone else worshiped out of preservation. They said no, then were offered an opportunity to give in and receive the preservation, and they still say no. They are so committed to God. They understand their life does not exist to serve themselves, but to serve God. So with all the teenage angst that they can muster, they say to King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't even need to respond to you, right? He's their king. He's in charge. He's the one who can put them to death. He asks them a question, and they're like, your question needs no response from us because we don't belong to you. We belong to God. The confidence in that statement to say, I know where my identity is rooted. I know where I'm founded. I'm found in the creator of heaven and earth. And you have just delivered me something that is so, so consequential to my life. But I don't even need to give you a response because I don't actually have to submit to you on this. I submit to God on this. This isn't a matter of earthly law. This is a matter of heavenly principle and where my life is rooted. And I will worship God and God alone. And so that's why even in the midst of this, they say, we don't need to listen to you. We belong to God and we're going to worship him. And even if he doesn't save us, he's able to save us. But even if he doesn't save us, we're still not worshiping your idols. Because the reality is we're only fixing our eyes on God. The reality is we're only going to place our trust in God. And I don't care what you've offered me, O King Nebuchadnezzar. It's not as good as worshiping the one true God. So 
If you worship the statue, Nebuchadnezzar says, you get to live. And they say, I'm not going to exchange something that's intimate for something that just preserves me. Worship is an intimate act. When we give our hearts to God, when we give our lives to God, it's an intimate act. And so what they're saying is, I'm not going to exchange that which is most important, that which is most intimate for something that only results in preservation. They, re- they recognize that their worship of God is not transactional. It's not a transactional relationship, but it's foundational. They won't reject the holy God for self-preservation, but they will place their trust fully in him. So as we close this story out today, he says this in verse 19, the Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and his expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats and their other garments and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. So scripture says that Nebuchadnezzar is filled with fury. His expression on his face changes. He went from negotiation to, hmm, we're done. This is over. I'm the judge. I'm the jury. I'm sentencing you. It's done. No more conversation. Orders that the furnace is overheated, heated seven times hotter, throws them into the fire. The fire is so hot that it kills the dudes who are walking them into the fire. This is such a wild scene. If you're imagining this taking place and something that stood out to me so much is knowing the fire was coming. As they're being bound up, as the preparations for their death are being made, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, teenage boys, young men, know the fire is coming, yet they remain committed to God. It's no longer an argumentative point. It's no longer a debate. They know the fire is coming, and yet they choose to say, I'm faithful to God. So as the men are carrying them towards the fire, they're unshaken. They're tossed into the furnace, And as they're thrown in, it kills the men who are carrying them. But then in verse 24, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered him and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men walking around in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. What did we talk about last week? The fire has no power over their bodies. The fire in your life has no power over your life. You submit to God and God Alone, And the hair on their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve any god except their own god. Their perspective is so important here. 
They were able to go through with the most daring consequence that I can think of having to go through. And they do so, and it gives them the strength to go into the fire. God is with them in the fire. But the trust that they have results in not only their perspective standing out, but their, their perspective standing out to a wicked king, to a king who does not believe the way that they believe. And in fact, asked the question earlier, and who's the God that's going to deliver you out of my hands? He thinks he is God. And he's standing there watching this thing go on, and he realizes, oh, no, there is an actual God who is, who's able to save them. And so King Nebuchadnezzar is astonished. He thinks he's God until he sees the evidence of the one true God. And God's faithfulness that day to be with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire affirmed their faith. But like I said, it didn't just bless them through saving them and preserving them. But it actually changed the perspective of the oppressive Nebuchadnezzar. You see, he realizes that their God is powerful and that their God can be trusted and should be trusted. So Shadrach, Reshach, and Abednego withhold nothing from God, not even their life, because they know that he's the only one who should be worshiped. And as I was studying this passage again this week, I was drawn to the book of Hebrews chapter 12, um, because it talks about the importance of keeping our perspective right. And the first example it uses in this passage is, is Jesus. So let's read these words really, really quickly. It says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run the race and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, that for the joy set before him he endured the cross. What is the joy? The joy is his rightful place in eternity at the right hand of the Father, but the joy is also you and me being restored and reconciled back to a relational God who wishes to have his creation know him. Jesus endures the cross. He endures the shame. He does so because his eyes are fixed on the right spot. Remember him in the garden. He goes to God and he, God the Father and he says, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, let's do that. But not my will be done, but yours. Let your will be done. Let your will be done, God. Let, let your will be done. I want to follow you. I want to serve you. I want to fix my eyes on you. Should be the cry of our heart as we mimic the heart of Jesus. So we align our perspective with him. We run our race with endurance. And by doing so, we get rid of everything, as it's written, that's holding us back. We get rid of every sin. We get rid of every weight holding us back, the things that aren't good for us, the things the enemy wishes for us to have, fear, sin, anxiety, a lack of peace, a lack of hope. We know that all that we need is founded in our God. And so it says in verse three, consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted in your struggle against sin. You have, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and have, you, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines everyone he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, not as enemies, not as acquaintances 
the sons as his children. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. In our culture, I think sometimes that word discipline can become a pretty difficult word for us to wrap our arms around. I think sometimes we exchange the word discipline and punishment. We like think they're the same thing. They're, they're not. Um, discipline is like correction and like teaching and let me help you find your way. Punishment is you are bad. Does that make sense? Can, can we draw those lines? And what the Lord is providing us with is, is discipline. As we walk through difficult situations in our life, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego even are going into the fire, there's a discipline that's happening there. God's utilizing a situation that's going on in their world. While he doesn't cause the bad things in our life to happen, he will utilize them to change us, to shape us, to mold us, because he's a father who loves us more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. He's a God who wants what's best for us, and he knows what's best for us. And so the Lord does not seek to harm you as the world does, but because we belong to God, he wants to sharpen you, to shape you, and to mold you into who he wants you to be because the discipline is actually good for us. Being shaped and crafted and molded by the hand and the heart of God is good for us. And in this life, we will have trouble, Jesus said, but to take heart for he's overcome the world. God's going to use that trouble that we're going to face for our good. And so when you walk through the fire, we have to remember, hey, though God did not cause the fire, God will utilize it to develop us, to change us. And two things are going to happen. He's going to use the fire to strengthen you, and he's going to use the fire to show his strength to the world around you. When Jesus walked the path of Calvary, crucified on the cross, beaten, bruised, spit on, cursed. Had his body just destroyed along the way. That was not for nothing. It wasn't a punishment for nothing. But it was to deliver the grace that we needed. Not that we deserved, but that we needed. And so Jesus endures the cross with his eyes fixed in the right direction. And I believe that when we walk through difficult situations in our life, it's a similar response that we have to have. Our perspective has to be fixed on God. Remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God saved their lives, and then he reveals his power to King Nebuchadnezzar through it. It says this in verse 9, Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, dis- or for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Your perspective matters. In the moment, it's painful. In the moment, the difficult situation is hard, but on the other side, it's free. Can you imagine being Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and walking out of that literal furnace? You've had this encounter with God in the midst of your most wild circumstances. And while you would never choose to have to endure the fire, they walk out on the other side, and I imagine there's just this weight lifted. Wow, we endured. Wow, God was faithful. Wow, he's so good. And as we walk through difficult things in our life, I believe that that's the reality, that on the other side of everything difficult, if we keep our perspective on God, that even though my situation is terrible, God is not. God is great. God is good. 
even though my, my life is dealing with some hard stuff right now, the reality is I serve the Prince of Peace, the creator of the universe. And on the other side, if we can keep that perspective, I believe we'll come out walking freely going, I cannot believe how good God is, how faithful God is. But my question for all of us today is this, what if we choose to adopt that perspective that we're reading about before the fire ever hits. I think for so many of us, we're concerned about how we're gonna react once the fire hits, rather than preparing for that on the front end. You see, I believe that obedience is a front end decision. I believe that obedience is a proactive decision, that we don't just become obedient once things get wild but we're obedient all along the way so that when things get wild, it's second nature. I follow God. God is good. It does not matter that I cannot see the road in front of me. I will take one step at a time as he lights my path and shows me where I need to go. Obedience is not a decision that's made in the fire. It's a decision that's made long before we ever enter it. And the reality is for every single one of us, we're gonna go through a fire at some point. Some of you may say, I'm in it right now. And the reality is God is with you in it. And some of us may say, fuck, I just came out of it. You may have. God was with you through it. He's with you now. For the rest of us who say, well, I don't feel like I was just in one and I'm not in one. It means at some point you're going to be in one. So we make a decision on the front end to say, God, I want to be obedient. I want to give my attention to you. I don't want to focus on my pain or focus on the pain that the fire might provide. I want to fix my eyes on you and you alone. So if we can get our eyes fixed on God, we'll see the fire and we'll be able to do this next part with confidence. This is it as we close. It says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without, without which no one will see the Lord. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit his blessing, he was rejected and he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer up to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. For our God is a consuming fire. For our God is a consuming fire. Graciously, he will mold you and shape you and change you and train you through your difficult situations in your life. And you're gonna come up against things that are difficult, but where we put our perspective is paramount and matters more than my words can articulate because peace is on the other side of where we place our perspective. And so many times I think we think that peace is the absence of problems, but peace is the presence of God. It is the only place where we will find healing and wholeness, redemption and freedom. So we fix our eyes on God and not on the world. We fix our eyes on God and not on what we can control. We fix our eyes on God and not on our problems. And we fix our eyes on him who will never leave us or forsake us. Because he endured the cross, despising its shame, 
kept his eyes fixed on the prize. And that prize was to be seated at the right hand of the Father for each and every one of us to experience the grace and the forgiveness that only comes from him, that reconciles us back to a good God who loves us. So much of what we battle and we face in this world is a battle of perspective. So let me ask you a few questions. Where are your eyes fixed? Where are your eyes fixed? Are your eyes on the fire? Are your eyes on the financial burden? Are your eyes on the medical diagnosis? Are your eyes on the past? Are your eyes on the mistakes that you've made? Are your eyes on the mistakes that others have made to you? Are your eyes on what you can acquire or on what you can control? Where are your eyes? Are your eyes on God? Are your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith? Because wherever your eyes are will indicate where you will end up. For every single one of us, it's paramount that our eyes are on God. For every single one of us, it's important to remember that there's only one God. And guess what? We are not him. So every aspect of our lives, we submit to him. And for every single one of us to remember that, yes, one day we're going to go through the fire. And the fire is hot. But God is greater. And our God will walk with us through the fire. And how do we know that? Because he already did. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He kept his eyes forward, enduring the embarrassment, the brutal beating and the death that came with the cross so that you and I could have life life eternal. So put your eyes on him. Place your trust in him. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He'll walk with you through the fire. He's already been through it. He understands it. He knows the way through. Place your trust in him daily. When you feel overwhelmed, pray. When you feel discouraged, remind yourself of God's power, the way that he's provided for you in your life. Write it down. When you're grieving, allow the Lord to comfort you. Go to him in your mourning. When your mind is in distress, turn to God's word. Read it. As you read it, it's going to renew your mind. So whether you're in the fire, leaving the fire, about to go into the fire, wherever you are, fix your eyes on God. And remember, our obedience is a front-end decision. No matter where you're at in your life today. You can make the choice to say, God, I just want to give you my life. I want to surrender every detail of it. I've been holding on to this. I've been fighting this. I want to give it to you. And we can do that with confidence because our God is good. Our God is faithful.